The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, June 16th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The assassination of Joe Cox, British lawmaker, shocked her nation where gun violence is exceedingly rare. About 60 people each year are killed in England and Wales. That's over about a 15-year period. That's, that's the, uh, when you have a small number, that's the most accurate way to get a decent average. 60. Now, the population of England and Wales, it's about 60 million. The U.S. is more than five times as big. But that doesn't mean that we have five times the gun deaths, right? We don't have 300 gun homicides. That would be if we killed each other at the same rate as they do in England by guns. We, in fact, have 8,000 murders by gun a year. You include suicide. It's 20,000. You knew all that. You probably knew in the last three days there were about 100 related gun deaths in the United States. You knew that because you're saying, of course, Orlando. No, Orlando was more than three days ago. Those 49, I'm not even counting the 100 people that have been killed since then. And by the way, when I talk about the Orlando killing, you know I meant the Pulse nightclub. But if Pulse hadn't even happened, we'd probably still be talking about the Orlando shooting. Only this time, it would be the incident where singer Christina Grimmie was killed by a deranged fan. And in that case, the dominant conversation could still very well be, how did that crazy person in Orlando get the gun? Will this change anything? How many more people have to die? So back to England and the UK, politics have been put on hold there. Members of parliament and elected officials refusing to discuss the Brexit, which is Britain leaving the EU. The politics there that Joe Cox favored remain. She was against the Brexit. Her killer, it's been reported, was anti-immigration, a nationalist who did not favor remain. I looked at how this affected the market. Sorry if you think it's crass, but it's interesting to see the reaction. Immediately after word got out about the attack on Joe Cox, we hadn't even known if she was dead. The pound lost value. And you'd expect something like that to happen just faced with any uncertainty. What's going on? Maybe a panic move. But then it began to be reported that the killer shouted Britain first, which as of my taping this show, the BBC hasn't confirmed, but the Guardian has. Just want to put that out there. But when that was known and when some details of the killer and his predilections came to light, the pound began to rise against the dollar to strengthen. In fact, it's closed higher today than it has in the last three days with such a close vote to come on June 23 about the Brexit. Maybe this horrible assassination will create sympathy for the Remain side, or maybe it will cause people who were thinking to vote to leave the EU, maybe it will cause them to think about who their bedfellows are. Maybe it'll just halt the momentum that we've been seeing on the leave side. But I have another theory. I mean, the big thing to say is you can't read too much into instant market reactions. They're often wrong. They're often short-lived. But I do think so far the problem with the Remain camp is that old political dictum. You can't beat something with nothing. Leave was about something. It was an action. The action had or has a consequence. What did Remain ever have except saying, no, we're not leave? But now Remain, in some small way, ties itself to the memory and the legacy of Joe Cox. 
On the show today, I spiel about a southern game bird and the people who do not want to limit my support of said fowl. And British satirist Jesse Armstrong, who's written for Veep and Black Mirror, screenwriter of Four Lions and In the Loop. He's out with a novel, but first, Henry Rollins, Black Flag lead singer, spoken word artist, badass about town. He's starring in a new movie. He plays a pretty bad guy. Henry Rollins is, I mean, now I guess he's most known as an actor. He's an eclectic guy, a spoken word artist. He's in Sons of Anarchy. His new movie is called The Last Heist. And of course, Black Flag, maybe you heard of Black Flag. Hey, Henry, how are you? Oh, fine, thanks. So this character in The Last Heist, I mean, as the title might imply, you got a bank heist going, but you're, you're the fly in the ointment, shall we say. Yeah, it's an interesting bit of work because there's this whole hectic drama going on with, you know, cursing and yelling and fighting. And most of those people in the film I, I never met. And the few of them I did meet, I, I, I killed them. This is one William Six. Officers need assistance. Boss, you might want to come see you. There's been a development. There's a possibility there's a wanted serial killer operating on the inside. I just need a moment of your time. You know, I was just concentrating on, on trying to make the guy really creepy. You know, it was offered to me. They said, look, here's this thing. And I said, okay, well, it's a genre-specific film, so you really can't reinvent anything, but I can perhaps do something with this character that's different. Instead of going, you know, the standard route of I'm yelling and I'm terrifying, maybe the guy's really nice. Yeah. And I roll that out to Mike Mendez, the director, and he said, I love that. I estimate you have about nine minutes to live. If I were you, I'd contemplate what you want to do with the rest of your life. Would you say that from when you started acting and taking acting roles in fiction films to now, uh, there's been a, an evolution, a transformation, and that in the beginning, people wanted you because you were energetic and charismatic, and now, I don't know, like anything, you do it for long enough, you've refined your craft a little bit? Oh, are you asking, basically, am I getting hired, basically, as an actor, unless as uh, the guy in the band? I think, I'm not even asking the hiring question, I'm asking when you assess your roles and performances over the years, do you think you've, I'm not going to say better as an oh, have actor. have I gotten but, any better? Well, I'm not going to say better, I'm going to say different. Like, to me, when I think about early Henry Rollins, I'm like, shit, that's Henry Rollins, and then when I've seen you, like, in Sons of Anarchy, I say to myself, uh, oh, depth, I don't know if he's taking classes, but he seems like, you know, totally legit actor now. Oh, well, thanks. I've noticed a change. I just, it took me a while to figure out how I could take everything that I've learned on stage and apply it to acting. And I, I saw the two disciplines as completely different. And they are somewhat different, but they do have similarities. You know, there's discipline, there's focus, there's being in the moment. And as soon as I was able to tap into that, acting went from a thing that was nerve-wracking, where you'd lose sleep over an audition, to where you couldn't wait to go in and show the director like these five ideas you had and you couldn't wait to, if you got the job, meet the other actors and create these moments. And that's where I'm at now, where the day goes very quickly because I'm so eager to be that thing and get into it. 
Oh, so would you say early on then acting was a little like when you're a young musician and your approach to a song, a cover song is I want to get the notes right and that's called playing the song. And then later on, actually, I can imbue it with something, even though it may be someone else's song, I could bring legitimate creativity and choices to it. Exactly. Yeah. You just have to figure out how to hold the brush. And that just takes a lot of practice. And there are some people, you know, acting class is a real thing. Yeah. One can really learn. It would probably do me good to take one or five or 50, actually. But there's some people, they just have it. I don't, but I've been around it. And it's freaky. I mean, it's really something to behold when you're around someone who has that thing. And if, if you can be around it enough, you can kind of learn a lot. I learned a lot about acting from not sitting in my trailer when I wasn't working, but sitting on set and watching real actors, because I'm not a real actor. I'm just an opportunist. Uh-huh. I-, I come from the minimum wage working world. I just try stuff. So, Would you say you're a real musician? No. I'm just a guy who got in a band. I come from $3.75 an hour work, and I've applied kind of the I don't want to go back to that ethic to everything else I've ever done. And it's been this weird 35, 36-year improv, but I'm not really trained for any of it. Would you say you're a real journalist? No. (laughs) No, I just am interested in doing stuff. And if you're not really anybody, Mm -hmm. you can sign up for anything because the worst it gets is go, oh, come on, get out of here. And you get back in your Mazda and go home. And I take all of it with incredible amounts of seriousness. I can't tell you how much time I put into everything I do, from writing to the radio show, etc. That being said, I don't think I'm anything, but I try really hard. Now, when you say you came from $3.25 an hour job, I've seen the pictures of you at that Hagen Dawes. You seemed happy. It didn't seem terrible. Oh, it wasn't bad. I'm just saying I, I come from a really normal, yeah. mediocre American career path of a you know, small apartment, small car, a little stereo, and a job that makes your feet get swollen. N- nothing wrong with it. And the route that has been mine for the last three and a half decades has been extraordinary. In that, I'm not extraordinary, but the, the shot I've gotten is you know, not like anybody I went to school with. Now, let me ask you a question about the journalism, because I consider myself a real journalist. Um, I don't know if, luckily, there's no, there's no licensing, so anyone could say that too. But what I like about a lot of the things that I've seen you do that could be called journalism is that it seems like you're asking questions, and sometimes when, I'm going to pick on Sean Penn a little bit, he um, irritates me. You could disagree, but it seems to me that someone like Sean Penn comes in with a set of answers that he wants to tell you, whereas you're more oriented by a set of questions that you want to ask. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm always looking for answers. I'm not trying to insert myself into the thing. I want the person to to tell me what, but I'd never call myself a journalist because then you have to put yourself in the same pantheon as a guy like Robert Fisk, the great British journalist who was in... uh, Lebanon, anything on the Middle East, he's your go-to guy. One of his sentences is worth 10 of anyone else's. He's exceptional. So uh, that's why I would run from that that title, just because I, I would just get my ass kicked. All right. Pleasure talking to you. Henry Rollins. The new movie is The Last Heist. It always is, isn't it? The Last Heist. It always is. It's always The Last Heist. Thank you, Henry. 
Okay, see ya. The year is 1994, and let's say a ragtag, or at least a poorly matched group of idealists. What do you call idealism when it has no purpose or real vector of uh, intellect? Anyway, these guys, these college students, and one decidedly not, all get in a van. It's uh, Europe, so this is pretty easy to do. They drive to Yugoslavia. There's a war going on, you know, and these kids, they feel bad for a lot of the people involved in the war, except for one of them. He feels mostly lust for a fellow passenger on the trip, and that brings us to Love, Sex, and Other Foreign Policy Goals, a novel by Jesse Armstrong. Jesse Armstrong is the uh, co-creator and writer of BAFTA award-winning sitcoms Peep Show, as well as Fresh Meat, Bad Sugar Babylon, and with Chris Morris, Four Lions. Did you see Four Lions? One of the funniest terrorist movies ever. He was also co-writer of The Thick of It and In the Loop, and he writes for Veep. Hello, Jesse. How are you? I'm really good. Really glad to be here. Kind of pumped up on coffee. I'm ready to go. I'm going to spill the goods. Let's do it. Okay. What was your personal interaction, opinion of, exposure to the crisis in the Balkans in the early to mid-90s? I wasn't there uh, personally. I was affected by it. I was a young man and, um, you know, terrible things happen in the world all the time, sadly. Some of them you read about in the paper and take your attention for a short amount of time and other ones stay with you. And that was one I, it, it, it stayed with me. It was, it was something that I thought about a lot and um, that was my only direct relationship to it. Were you in university at the time? See, I, I know how to say it. <laughs> yeah, I was in college. I'm, co- I'm college. translating. But were you on holiday in uni- No, so you were in college and you probably knew a bunch of people like these mostly college students in the book who had these great intentions but really didn't have any point I did. Yeah, I did some street theater myself. I didn't take it to Bosnia, but I knew other people later after the war who took kind of artistic charitable endeavors. And there was a whole, you know, uh, I think Susan Sontag did um, Brecht in Sarajevo. Yes. And people um, took uh, music. There's a certain satirical approach to those endeavors in the book, but also I find them laudable. You know, you, you see something terrible happening in the world and the desire to, to do something is a good human desire. Satirists are the biggest romantics, actually. That's why they're satirists, because so often things fail to satisfy their idealism. I think that's, that's dead right. And, and John Stewart always said that. Does uh, Iannucci, your collaborator, does he believe in this? He, he's too uh, – he would never be so gauche as to say that out loud. But I, well, that's, he's also English, so he doesn't yeah. – <laughs> He's Scottish and oh, uh, he would remind you if he was here. Yeah. Uh, you can't, but, that's a mistake you could never not get corrected <laughs> if you call a Scotsman an Englishman. Sorry, but let's go on with Ar- Armando. Yeah, no, I think that's that's just dead true about satirists from Swift through the people who have very heightened, noble aims for the world and see them being perverted and subverted, feel strongly about that. Now, why did you want to make your main character in the book not a university student, a laborer, if we could call him that, a guy who's good at like hiding for eight hours and still getting a paycheck on a a contracting job? Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I knew that world a bit. I've done a little bit of um, looking at me with my ripped torso, as you can see. I'm I'm, 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 I'm no stranger to physical labor. Those rough-hewn 
hands. <laughs> so I've done a bit of that. So I knew that world. And I guess it made it, it, it points up maybe the contrast between his background. And he, he's a fish out of water with the doubly so. He ends up with these with these undergraduates, with these college students. And also they end up um, in Bosnia. So he's he's deeply out of water. Now, he is a comic archetype. I think of him as a son of Fielding Mellish. He is a nebbish. <laughs> he is definitely uh, neurotic. He's in over his head. That's a and, – and, and it's more than just um, every Woody Allen character, Arthur Dent, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Great reference. Sure. We can have a lot of sympathy with that person even as that person is being pathetic in the literal sense, full of pathos, pathetic. But how do you toe the line so you don't make him so pathetic that it becomes unsympathetic and uncomic? I think um, George Orwell said about Dickens that you, if you're a caricaturist, you need to be careful not to see too much. Mm-hmm. So I think you, we need to see enough of this person that we can sympathize with their dilemmas. I, I guess that's, that's the key hand that you have on the dial, right? That you want to be able to sympathize. And if we, if we know enough about this person, and this is why hopefully he's not a caricature, is we, 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 we see more of him enough to know that these foolish errors he makes come from uh, faults in his psychology. Yes, it's like every exaggeration, you know, Larry David's character in Curb Your Enthusiasm. We're with him 80% of the way. We're with your guy. And then he pretends to know a language he doesn't know, which I'll get to in a second. But when, when you're creating this sympathetic character, I think the other key trait you have is you make the characters around him so ridiculous and he observes how ridiculous they are. And therefore, we as the reader appreciate that and rely on him. So even if he himself transgresses here or there, if he's noting how crazy everything is, um, he's useful to us. Good. Yes. You're breaking open what was only inside my own head and hopefully uh, <laughs> retrospectively validating it. Yeah. And also, you know, the thing about fiction is you get to be inside the protagonist's head in a way that you're not in TV and that just gives you a lot of license because you can feel their pain, you can feel their social pain and their political machinations that have led them to the point that they end up at. Do you think the an English audience is more comfortable with being uncomfortable? I think that, well, I look at The Office, right? Ricky Gervais's character really made you squirm, whereas... Michael Scott, David Brent yeah. was his character. So the American version, Michael Scott, was more sympathetic and you were more on his side. And I think that there maybe is a tradition of these really, really, of, of you know, Basil Fawlty or yeah. these really, really, I'm not going to say unsympathetic, but it's yeah. just not priority one, two, or three of the English satirists to make their main character at all heroic. Whereas with the American audience, it's got to be up. I think it's up there a little more. We feel more heroic in the world. But you, but the great American comic characters, George Costanza, some of the Woody Allen characters you mentioned, they're surely in the same ballpark. I mean, I but admit, George Costanza is not the main character. Uh, sure. Yeah. I would kind of say he, from a, from a comedy writer's point of view. He, <laughs> yeah, he's the one you want uh, to write uh, for Yeah, I, I think there is something in what you say that we, you know, I don't particularly aim ever to make an audience cringe, but I see I've heard the phrase cringe comedy. Yeah. And maybe there is more of a penchant for that in the UK than in the US. But on the other hand, I feel like it's shot through, you know, Hannah Horvath. It's like, if that isn't, cringing at her missteps, what is it? I think you're right. I think we've caught up. 
I think that a couple things. I think that uh, Girls is an HBO show and can have a smaller audience. And I think on these premium cable station or Netflix, you could have a much less likable character. Yeah. And I think still with broadcast, it's hard. Yeah. And I think that over time, some of these characters that start off a little warm and fuzzy go dark for yeah. a lot of reasons. Like the comedy writers need something yeah. to keep themselves entertained. But also, <laughs> they know the audience is there and are willing to go with it. And I think that I think that American comedy tastes were always there. It's just that the gatekeepers didn't trust uh, that there'd be enough people to rally around uh, a truly unlikable comic character. And these these little underground hits like Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. No one's tiny. ever heard of. <laughs> right. <laughs> but remember, it was it was almost canceled for a few sure, years. Sure. But yeah. that, that goes for every show. And in the UK, we like to uh, sometimes flatter ourselves, that, oh, the, the US doesn't have a, such a keen sense of irony. And then you look at Seinfeld, The yes. Simpsons. These shows are not lacking. Yeah, and, and just the mainstream British sitcoms are not BAFTA award winners. No, you know? we're, we're having <laughs> Most, a hard time coming up with with with, with mainstream hits. Yeah, well, you got to you got to win a BAFTA. I mean, you got to give one every year, so someone wins, right? It's not like the Nobel where they're like, there was no winner in the category <laughs> this year. Okay, so I mentioned, so you have the conceit of your guy not pretending like he's on the trip because he speaks the language. He speaks Serbo-Croatian. Here's the problem. He doesn't really speak it. <laughs> this is almost Hitch- Hitchcockian. It's the bomb that hasn't gone off. It's the loaded gun, whatever metaphor you <laughs> want to use. So you knew that when it would go off, that could be a great comic set piece, I'm sure. Yeah. Did you write it from the moment where it's revealed backwards or did you have this idea and then decide, all right, how am I going to make the explosion happen? That's a good technical question. I think it was the the latter. I think it was some gold that I buried for myself, hopefully. Mm. And then you, you set up a certain amount of pressure because you know, you know what, that should pay off in a great comic set piece. And I guess it's a good pressure to have, but you do, you, you, you sort of eye it coming over the horizon. Oh shit, is this going to be good enough for this, you know, interesting little setup? Is a joy of a novel like this that you could get into the tertiary and whatever is under tertiary details and satire beyond – like the thick of it is fantastic. And Four Lions, it's a feature film. It's an hour and a half. You could make your points. It's not – you don't take it easy on anyone. I mean it's really it's really deep and committed. But here, it's not even so that you could go deeper with the satire. It's you could sat you could satirize so many different things. You could satirize the farm policy establishment. Yeah. And you could satirize things that might be considered, you know, off the main track of uh, the main story of a one and a half hours feature film. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, a complicated technical difference between a sitcom and a novel, and it boils down to, I would say, the novel being way long. Where Way longer. It's way long. And you're you're allowed to, to go off in those directions. Hopefully, you know, I, I always try to keep in mind my screenwriting background and not for there to be digressions about foreign policy. But if you have the right kind of characters in the right kind of situations, then you can hit lots of stuff. And that's joy that you don't get in 22 or 30 minutes. Jesse Armstrong, author of Love, Sex and Other Foreign Policy Goals. And then it says right here in this little burst of uh, gunfire on the cover, a novel. Good to know. Well, you, you, you do that in the U.S. That's, in the U.K., we tend not to do that. But apparently, people like to know what they're going to have. Classic understatement. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse. Good to meet you. Likewise. I've had a great time. Thank you. And now the spiel quells off the rails. Thank you, the email began, for renewing your Quail Forever membership. 
To date, members such as you have helped us complete wildlife habitat projects, benefiting more than 12 million acres of critical upland habitat. You will receive your Quail Forever membership materials in the mail in four to six weeks. Soon thereafter, you may just have received an email from Quail Forever thanking you for joining us. This email was mistakenly sent to you during a Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever database management. Please rest assured no charges were made. We apologize for the inconvenience. Okay. Apology accepted. Quail email derailed. But now I was intrigued. Theretofore, I had never truly contemplated Quail Forever. If I had to guess, I wouldn't have been shocked to learn that Quail Forever was the catchphrase of the new Oscar Isaac villain in the X-Men movie. You shall kneel before me and quell forever. In fact, Quail Forever is a 140,000 Albany, Georgia-based member organization that started as an offshoot of Pheasant Forever, and I do mean offshoot, because even though Forever is right there in the name and claims of conservation are shot through on the website, and I do mean shot through, make no mistake, this is an organization that wants to protect quail in order to shoot them. They like the idea of lots and lots of quail, an abundance of quail, so they can kill a lot of quail and not worry that they'll run out of quail. They want to preserve and protect quail to shoot and kill quail. Hey, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not soft on the quail menace, and I'm not so ignorant that I don't realize that the history of conservation is mostly in the service of hunting the inhabitants of the preserved habitats. And I'm not so denatured, I'm not such an urban fancy pants that I've become totally immune to the immense pleasures of aiming a firearm at a small bird and piercing its vital organs until it's deceased. I'm no urban dwelling camophobe. I haven't gone kale over quail. That said, there are other, shall we say, ironies to the quail forever brand. Beyond the fact that they, for a good 20 minutes there, counted me as a member. Quail forever it turns out, is the successor organization to Quail Unlimited. Quail Unlimited, belying their name, if not their nature, if not nature itself, went out of business in 2013. The leader of Quail Unlimited, Bill Bowles, had a freewheeling press conference attended by the Albany, Georgia news media, including the Albany Herald and Fox News Channel 31. In that news conference, he leaned into an outdoorsy metaphor to describe the situation that Quail Unlimited had found itself in. You know, we've worked so hard these last two and a half years, but what we've uh, oftentimes, as I've said, we've been paddling a boat with a toothpick. Um, this not only gives us some real oars to paddle a boat with, it gives us an outboard motor. Uh, Quail Forever has tremendous chapter and member support. And so it was that Quail Forever would rise from Quail Unlimited's ashes, rise like a glorious phoenix, no more like a quail that had caught on fire, because we should never forget that Quail Unlimited is more than just a brand name. It is a way of life, or in the case of the quail, not. But like I said, it's more than just a name, right, Bill Bowles? You know, Quail Unlimited is just a name. Okay, in fact, Quail Unlimited is kind of an ill-conceived name insofar as its express mission is specifically to limit the lives of specific quails, not all quail kind. But there is also the problem that Quail Unlimited, by closing, proved to be quite limited. Its closure, by the way, 
came against the backdrop of financial quail-related chicanery, which I kid you not, Field and Stream likened at the time to the financial crisis. This is from Field and Stream, November 2009, quote, apparently the culture of greed and reckless management that brought us the Enron scandal and the Wall Street mess exists in the conservation community as well. Yes, they were speaking of quail. Though sadly, unlike J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, Bill Bowles explains that his group would get no quail out bailout, that they proved not to be too big to quail. We were looking at another five to seven years with the membership base that we have currently and the revenues that could be generated in the quail unlimited model. We were looking at another five to seven years to retire that debt. And that's, it's not the right thing to do. It's not the right thing to do for the bird. It's not the right thing to do for the membership. And so they're doing the right thing for the birds, shooting them, as well as shooting me emails, welcoming me aboard and then kicking me out before I could purchase the Quail Forever Travel Mug Black or the Quail Forever Tactile Pro Shirt Brown or the Quail Forever Deluxe Pooper Scooper before I could equal the CEO's impressive list of credentials. Hi, I'm Howard Vincent, President and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Like many of you, I'm a son, a brother, a parent, and a bird hunter. Well, I am a father, I am a son, I'm an uncle, I'm a conservationist, I'm a proud member of email lists I had no idea I was on, but I'm also a bit wiser. Because, like a quail flushed from the brush, feet from a jacked-up-on-monster-energy-drink Dick Cheney, I know that nothing lasts forever. Not even quail. Forever. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson was a member of Turn In Memorial, but she dropped out. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was a member of Auk Inexhaustible. They went the way of the dodo. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, joined blue-footed Bobby without boundaries. It was not what he expected. The gist, a founding member of Egret Inexhaustible, which I found exhausting, much to the Egret's regret. Umpuru depuru dupuru. And thanks for listening. There's a reference to, if this were a kitten, we'd take a spade to it at this point. I don't know that <laughs> Americans can get past that. I don't, maybe it's not, maybe it's just only sick-ass Brits <laughs> would respond to that one. You don't spade kittens for on, on the uh, 4th of July. Oh, that's how we celebrate, uh, <laughs> we, we have a spading in the, in the town square. Yeah. No, I guess that's that's maybe that comes from rural. And when you say spade, do you mean fixed for reproduction purposes or no? No, you a mean, shovel. Yes, <laughs> clunk. That's what I'm saying. <laughs>